Hello and welcome to Queer as Fiction, where we talk about queer historical media. My name is Eli. I'm Jason. And today we're talking about the ancient Mesopotamian poem, The Epic of Gilgamesh. Before we get started, we have some content warnings for this episode. There is going to be a whole lot of sexual content, including brief mentions of sex work and sexual abuse, but not too explicit or in-depth with those. There will also be some violence, but it's sort of like storybook or fairy tale violence, and I expect most people will be fine. So we're going to start off by recounting the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh in brief. I am pleased with that, because it is quite a confusing read. Yeah, it's... Interesting. We'll talk about why it's a bit of a confusing read later on, just in terms of like what we actually have of it. It's interesting. I'd be interested to hear like what you knew of this beforehand, if anything, and what the general public knew of this story beforehand, because it's not one that's really entered public consciousness the same way that, say, like a lot of Greek myths have. I'd heard the name Gilgamesh, mm. and that is basically the extent to which I knew what this was. Okay. I could not have told you where this myth came from. I could not have told you what it was about. <laughs> uh, so I think that probably okay. yeah. sums up the, I mean, I, I, I guess maybe I am the, the layperson in this situation but like maybe maybe not maybe we'll find out that all of our listeners have heard of this (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah obviously you know when they fight humbaba obviously (laughs) but yeah i assume that'll be generally people's exposure to gilgamesh which is why i'm gonna tell the story in a bit more depth than we would normally go Mm -hmm. so without Mm -hmm. further ado the story begins in the city-state of uruk which is ruled over by the tyrannical king gilgamesh and the people of uruk are complaining to the gods about their king and how he's very tyrannical and oppresses them in various ways. In response, the gods create Enkidu, who is a wild man who lives among animals, until a trapper brings the sex worker Shamhat to him, with whom he has sex for seven days and six nights, and then decides to move to the city. Enkidu is forever changed from his union with her. He can no longer be a part of the animal realm. The animals flee from him now, and he travels with her to Uruk and learns how to eat bread, drink ale, and otherwise be a human being on the way. In Uruk, Enkidu confronts Gilgamesh, and they wrestle, and at the end of that, they recognize each other as equals and form a mutual respect and a strong relationship of some kind. (laughs) (laughs) After that, they go on various adventures together. Looking for immortalizing glory, they travel to the forest of Cedar and kill the ogre Humbaba, who guards it, with the help of the god Shamash. After they return to Uruk, the goddess Ishtar, who is the goddess of love and sex, in some ways comparable to, say, like, Aphrodite, Mm -hmm. proposes to Gilgamesh and he rejects her. In anger, she sends the Bull of Heaven, which is the constellation Taurus, to kill Gilgamesh, but Gilgamesh and Enkidu kill it instead. Enkidu dreams prophetic dreams that he is going to die, and then he falls sick and dies. Gilgamesh is thrown into terrible grief for his companion as a result of this, and lavish grave goods are taken from the treasury for him. Reflecting on his own mortality, Gilgamesh leaves Uruk to find the immortal man Utanapishti. After many trials, he eventually finds his way to where Utanapishti lives, and he tells him that he was given immortality by the gods for surviving the deluge, the great flood that was brought about by the gods to destroy mankind. Gilgamesh despairs of ever being able to achieve immortality, but as a parting gift, Utanapishti tells him about a sea plant that 
has rejuvenating powers. Gilgamesh dives into the sea to retrieve it, but when he stops to bathe in a pool on the way back home to Uruk, a snake carries it off and he realises that he'll never be able to find the plant again and pronounces that the only way he will achieve immortality is through the great walls of Uruk that he has built. And that's the whole story. That is the important parts (laughs) of the story. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing's about a hundred pages in terms of the version that I read. Yes. There's a lot of repetition. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel like that's a pretty accurate summation of what happens. So before we continue... Do you have anything you want to say about, like, just your initial reactions to this text? Did you enjoy reading it? Or did you find it, like, difficult to get into? We'll talk a bit about the literary traditions and history that make it a fragmented mess in a Mm -hmm. minute. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly gave me similar kind of vibes to other, like, ancient myths and stories that I've read before in terms of the protagonist not necessarily being particularly likable or good. Mm Mm-hmm. And the kind of, you know, prophetic dreams and, you know, the sort of active intervention of gods and all of that. So it wasn't fundamentally different Mm -hmm. from other stories that I've read, which was good because, yeah, as we're going to talk about the fragmented nature of what we have, did make it a difficult read at points. But yeah, you could certainly fill in the gaps um, in the lines with relative ease, I felt. And yeah, was it enjoyable? (laughs) It felt like too much of an archetypal story to be enjoyable I think as a piece of literature to me in this yeah it was very much kind of every character just kind of did what they said on the tin and were very obvious in their actions which meant that you know obviously there wasn't a huge amount of suspense in the story but you know that's critiquing it from a very like modern literature perspective rather than from a historical perspective but yeah it was interesting to read oh good i'm glad you know it was in some way enjoyable or at least held your interest oh yeah yeah, yeah. at least held your attention yeah yeah and certainly it was interesting yeah, because, I mean, we so often see those kind of Roman and Greek myths mm. that it was interesting to see a wildly different pantheon of gods pop up mm. and just kind mm. of be like, oh, okay, cool. Who, who is this person? What do they do? <laughs> um, at times, which was fun. And, yeah, having read a fair bit of historical fiction, I think, stood me in good stead at points with some of the terminology. Oh, okay. Do you have an example? Um, so just like the word cubits, for example. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's okay. just something where I'm like, oh, yeah, I kind of get what's being described here. Yeah. And like a lot of the like weapon terminology mm. and some of the like euphemisms for the way that they described people. I was like, I've read this in shoddy historical fiction. Do you feel like historical fiction or other mythology that you'd come across was more helpful in sort of situating you in consuming this story? Yeah, certainly um, a lot of stories intro the world, I guess. And I mean, Obviously, modern historical fiction tends to situate you in the world Mm -hmm. um, very thoroughly. Myths less so because obviously they were written in the past. But I felt like I got some idea of the kind of society that was writing this story and in terms of where they were at as a city and like what kind of professions existed and all that. But I guess it it did come in fragments throughout the story. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think my big question at the end of reading it was where did this come from and how do we have it? So do you want to talk about that? 
Yeah, so the Epic of Gilgamesh is particularly famous for being perhaps the oldest work of literature that exists in the world. Gilgamesh himself was originally likely a real king who has since been heavily mythologized, so perhaps comparable to, say, King Arthur in a slightly more familiar tradition. Mm -hmm. The city that he rules over in the Epic, Uruk, was a real city in the ancient civilization of Sumer, which is in current-day Iraq. Mm -hmm. So all of the early important stuff in the world happens in this area. It's the Fertile Crescent, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, Mesopotamia between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, where there's a lot of fertile land, so it's good for people to hang out and tell stories and maybe be gay in. (laughs) (laughs) To clarify, Sumer is in Sumerian? Yes. So to use that word in a sentence, Mm -hmm. Gilgamesh appears on the Sumerian king lists, so they're literal historical lists of who have been kings in Sumer. So he was certainly considered to have been a historical figure by the Sumerians themselves. Right. There's no real easy point at which we can say that this story was first written. So after writing developed in this region, gradually over time we see many different versions of episodes of this epic found on clay tablets that have since been excavated. For this episode we read what is generally called the standard version of the epic. Um, It was known in antiquity as He Who Saw the Deep, which is its first line. Hmm. which is a common way of, sort of naming texts in the ancient Near East. So, for example, the five books of the Torah, or the Old Testament, mm-hmm. I suppose. Mm-hmm. In English, you know, the first one, for example, is called Genesis, but mm-hmm. in Hebrew it's called Bereshit, which is in the beginning, which is very famously how the first line of Genesis begins. No! <laughs> <laughs> he Who Saw the Deep was composed by a man called Sinleke Unini, and it dates to somewhere between 1300 in 1000 BCE. Mm. Um, Sinleka Unini, interestingly, was like a sort of magician figure. That word isn't a great one because I feel like it sort of trivializes his role. Okay. In that, I don't know, I picture like kids' parties, which is not his job. <laughs> um, in, in a way where like magic and medicine aren't really separate. So his job was to sort of like assess people's illnesses and sort of figure out like magical solutions for them mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And also he wrote this. Yeah. So in his version, he retells the story and he pieces it together in new ways. He'll omit this part and put extra emphasis on this part and so forth. So it is his version of the story, but he doesn't invent the story. Mm-hmm. Um, he also doesn't invent the concept of integrating all of the different stories about Gilgamesh into one epic. Mm-hmm. We do have earlier versions that do that. Mm-hmm. So for example, there's an older version known as Surpassing All Kings, also named for its first line, mm-hmm. which is the same thing. It's a unified. Gilgamesh story. And it's that version that we often rely on to fill in the gaps of where we've lost bits of Sinleko and Nini's versions. Right, okay, yeah. yeah. The copies that we have of He Who Saw the Deep date to hundreds of years after they were written, so it's possible that this is not exactly what he wrote in the first place, that they were altered in the intervening time. Mm-hmm. And as we've alluded to, they are quite fragmented. And so we have to sort of fill in the gaps and try and piece them together and so forth. So all of that is to say that it's impossible to sort of say what the real or like genuine version of this story is, or even what the real or genuine version of the 
copy that we rely on the most is. Yeah. Which we need to keep in mind at all times when discussing this epic or anything that happens in it. Mm-hmm. For a very long time, we did not know very much in the modern world about ancient Mesopotamia or its literature. So unlike, say, the Homeric epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, we lost these for a long time. We didn't have them. And so there's not like thousands of years of intervening scholarship of people having opinions on them. The history of scholarship on the Epic of Gilgamesh is, is pretty recent, uh, which is an interesting difference to exist. When you say pretty recent... I mean, like, well, I was going to get into it now. Oh, okay, cool. Um, (laughs) Because I'm like, my definition of pretty recent and your (laughs) definition of pretty recent are not the same. True, true. (laughs) So starting in the 18th century. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's actually, that's more recent than I was expecting when you said that. An increased interest in Mesopotamia led to excavation of various key sites and eventual decipherment of cuneiform, which is the style of writing we see. The picture for this episode will be one of the tablets with cuneiform writing if you want to look at that and see what we're talking about, but it's that sort of like wedge-shaped angular triangular writing on clay. Mm -hmm. Gilgamesh was composed in Sumer and Akkad, which were two civilizations, as we've mentioned, in the Fertile Crescent, the most important place on Earth. Um, <laughs> and to the north of these places was Assyria, which rose to prominence and formed an empire in the first millennium BCE. Um, its last ruler was King Ashurbanipal, who lived from 688 to 627 BCE, and he was very into literature, so he compiled a great library in the city of Nineveh and had multiple copies of Gilgamesh there. Yeah, yeah, um, he's in Civilization V. Cool. <laughs> I actually know what that means, but sweet. <laughs> he's he's the, the leader of Assyria. Uh-huh. Like the Assyrian civilization. He's okay. the named leader and you get a bit of a historical biography oh, cool. of him. Um, nice. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I've heard of that one. Nice, yeah. <laughs> After his death, his library was sacked and the empire ended in 612 BCE. And all of his tablets, including those of the Gilgamesh epic, lay smashed on the ground for 2,500 years. Wow. They were rediscovered in the 1850s, and they're the core of the British Museum's clay tablet collection. That's amazing. Mm, yes. 2,500 years. Yeah. And it's like, oh, hey. <laughs> yeah, it's we're very lucky that they were recorded on clay tablets as opposed to papyrus. Mm. Um, so if we look at, for example, the poems of... Sappho, a lot of her work is just lost. Mm. And we're very lucky to occasionally find scraps of papyrus in, say, rubbish dumps in Egypt, where the climate is such that it is able to preserve paper for centuries and centuries and centuries. Yeah. But overall, paper is very vulnerable, and a lot of that work is just lost forever. Yeah, But clay tablets, on the other hand, are very durable, which is why we have been able to piece this thing together as well as we have. And that's the work that Assyriologists have been doing for the last few hundred years, taking these clay tablets, um, perhaps most significantly in the case of Gilgamesh from the library at Nineveh, but from all over the ancient Near East, and trying to figure out how they fit together and put this book back together. I have a a cute little story about one such incident. Please, please tell Um, me. (laughs) So the scholar George Smith was sorting through these tablets um, from Nineveh in the British Museum, and he came across the most famous of the Gilgamesh tablets, which is the one that contains the story of the deluge. The Egyptologist E.A. Wallace Budge wrote a book about Assyriology in which he describes Smith's reaction. He said, I'm the first man to read that after 2,000 years of oblivion. Setting the tablet on the table, he jumped up and rushed about the room in a great state of excitement, and to the astonishment of those present, began to undress himself. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
so delightful. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Deeply bizarre, yeah. but very delightful. There are still tablets in museums all over the world that haven't been fully examined or contextualized, and Assyriologists continue to slowly sort through these collections and piece the epic back together, as well as other works of Mesopotamian literature. Obviously, this is incredibly difficult and painstaking work that requires an intense level of training, which is why it's such a slow process. But nevertheless, I thought it was very interesting that Andrew George, who was the translator and editor of the version that we read, stated very confidently in the introduction that one day we will have the whole epic again, which blew my mind. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Uh, Like, again, coming to this sort of thing from a more, like, Greek perspective to again use Sappho as an example most of her work is lost and always will be and that's just yeah, there's what nothing. we have to come to terms with so having someone in another ancient discipline be like oh yeah we'll we'll get this back mm. was just amazing that would be so so rewarding to mm. work in because yeah. you'd be like you're working towards a finite goal that you may not achieve but that other people in the future probably will which I think almost touches on one of the themes of the epic of like sort of like working towards something some greater purpose for your life that will give you immortality after you die. Um, you know, obviously Gilgamesh is like, what if I built huge walls and killed a bunch of stuff? But I'm someone who does a lot of boring scholarship and reads about a lot of ancient heroes thinking about, like, how will my name be remembered? So I very much ascribe that kind of, like, heroic glory to work that people, like... Andrew George are doing. Yeah, yeah. Just sort of like putting little bits of clay back together. Yeah. Yeah. The first thing in my experience that scholars tend to say when they talk about the Epic of Gilgamesh is that although this story contains a lot about gods and the supernatural and fighting a little constellation and things like that, it is essentially at its core a story about human values, human limitations, what it is to be a human being. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. And scholars view this as a reason why it continues to have such a hold over at least some of the people who read it. (laughs) Your mileage may vary. Uh, Despite it being from such a distant culture and such Mm. a foreign Mm -hmm. way of life to us, the central concern of the epic is Gilgamesh's struggle to come to terms with his own mortality. During the course of the epic, he not only pursues this literally in seeking down Utanapishti, the only man who's never died, and trying to find this plant from the bottom of the sea, but also weighing that up against figurative immortality. I want to do these great deeds so that my name will live on after I die. And ending with him realising that that's the only kind of immortality he's ever going to be able to achieve. Scholars often talk about this in terms of Gilgamesh's growing maturity over the course of the novel. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not a novel at all. It is in no way a novel. (laughs) I once submitted an essay in which I referred to uh, the Iliad as a novel, and it was returned to me with, I'm literally taking one mark off and it's because you called this a novel on it. (laughs) And I didn't learn. (laughs) It does kind of follow, I feel, even how modern people often think about Mm. death, um, right? You know, he starts off very hedonistic and just kind of like living life in the moment. And then it becomes, I'm going to trailblaze and leave this awesome legacy and then it's kind of okay but i don't want to die and you know when he experiences mortality through the death of enkidu there's that fear and the pursuit of immortality and then finally 
the acceptance. Yeah, I think that's exactly the sort of thing that scholars point to when they say that you can read this and, like, we both did to slightly different degrees, be like, who's that god? I don't know. Mm. Where are we? What's happening? But Mm. still find key emotional beats and moments that make sense to you. Mm -hmm. I will also die one day. (laughs) (laughs) I may not slay a literal constellation, but I may die. No. Yeah. Probably. (laughs) Another key theme that scholars talk about is the tension between civilization and the wild that is explored in the text. So Mm -hmm. Enkidu begins in the wild, loses his ability to belong there through sex. You can analyze that for as long as you want to. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, becomes physically weaker but gains knowledge. When Enkidu learns that he's going to die, he curses the trapper and Shamhat for taking him out of the wild and into civilization. And then the sun god causes him to understand that this point of view is an error and that is enjoyed much through coming to be a part of civilization. And he retracts this. Yeah, it um, gave me very strong, you know, Garden of Eden vibes. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. You know, living in the wild and not being self-aware and then mm. becoming self-aware. Well, yeah, that's deeply obvious. <laughs> One of us studies the Bible on a weekly basis, you guess who? <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. And that brings us to another huge commonality this story has with the Bible, Mm -hmm. which is the story of the flood. Obviously, the existence within the story of a flood narrative that is very similar to that in Genesis Mm -hmm. is something that scholars have a lot of thoughts about in all kinds of different ways. (laughs) If it makes you feel any better, we're one all now because I did not think about how that was similar to the Bible at all. Okay, cool! Both the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Bible feature great flood narratives with the gods deciding for some reason to destroy civilization via a great flood, one man being singled out to survive this, and then the gods ending the flood and bringing about a new age of humanity. It's it's interesting that for all of the ways in which it's familiar in this one, there are also differences, and it's interesting to compare them. Mm-hmm. So in the Bible, God mm-hmm. decides to destroy humanity because they're all very wicked and sinful. Yep. Whereas in this, the god Enlil decides to destroy people in a flood because there are too many of them and they're very loud and the gods can't get any sleep. That is hilarious. Yes. <laughs> and there are various other differences in God's motivation, uh, which points to very interesting differences in various civilizations' understanding of God mm, and or gods. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could also discuss that for as long as you wanted to. <laughs> Those are, I think, the three most common things that scholars seem to bring up when talking about this. So before we move on to talking about why we're really here. Um, (laughs) Is there anything that you want to touch on that like really stood out to you or that you found interesting or that surprised you that wasn't queer? I did like the nuance that we talked about um, just before in regards to Enkidu coming from the wild and then losing his innocence and then coming to regret that later in life but then realising that civilization did have some benefits because I could see the regret coming from the early part of the story. Yeah. But I was surprised to then see the kind of understanding that arrived by the end of it. I was like, oh, okay, cool. This is like a level two story rather than a level one story. <laughs> you leave them alone. <laughs> Sinleko Anini is doing his best. <laughs> But no, I think overall you've touched on the main themes that were of interest. All right, so that is all of the preamble that we're obliged to do over with. Let's talk about the other thing that people sometimes get into, which is what exactly is going on with Gilgamesh and Enkidu's relationship? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... 
I read this for the first time probably like back in undergrad mm-hmm. and I remembered sort of the broad strokes of it since then and also we touched on is it gay then mm-hmm. but upon a reread of it it was much much queerer than I remember it being and expected it to be and I found that to be very delightful mm-hmm. uh, was that also your experience did it like deliver yeah no I I found it quite gay good in a fairly explicit kind of way there are so many lines in this that are just like basically just like this is a partnership these two people are together Mm. that felt very homoerotic Mm -hmm. there's a line before they even meet that's like like a wife you'll love him yeah that's uh that's pretty plainly spoken yeah Yeah. (laughs) right there and yeah it continued to be gay throughout and it maintains that sort of tone like throughout yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely yeah Yeah, and I, i was surprised to see how much it did maintain that tone after mm-hmm. he died as well like mm-hmm. you know both in terms of the lavish burial that you spoke about in the plot summary but also throughout Gilgamesh's quest he continues to call back to the death of mm-hmm. Enkidu and part of that is because Enkidu is brought to the fore by sort of like later writers of this story mm-hmm. in order to stress the mortality theme mm-hmm. um, at least that's what the theory is okay um, interesting that you know it's, it's the big event in the text that really drives home to Gilgamesh that I'm gonna die Mm -hmm. but it's also not just that it's not I'm sad that Enkidu is dead because I too will die it's I'm sad Enkidu is dead because Enkidu was the most important person in the world to me and and it's very very vocal about that yeah so I very much expected a lot of the scholarship to be very firmly absolutely not they're just friends how dare you Mm -hmm. um and that the understanding that their relationship was romantic and or sexual to be quite a recent one but the first to suggest that Gilgamesh and Enkidu's relationship was sexual specifically Mm -hmm. was the Assyriologist Thorkild Jacobson writing in the 1920s oh okay I know nothing about Jacobson but he doesn't seem to have been a gay man Mm. for what it's worth Mm -hmm. not to pry too much into this random guy's life but I think that is of relevance because a lot of the time when you get people saying, no, nah, no, nah, these historical figures or literary figures or what have you were gay, the reason why they're saying that is because they're gay and they want them to be gay, much like we're potentially doing here. <laughs> <laughs> Not to get too introspective. <laughs> <laughs> Let's avoid being introspective. Jacobson made this argument based on a part of the first tablet where Gilgamesh is oppressing Uruk and then also on the recounting of Gilgamesh's dreams to his mother, which is also something that you've already talked touched on. Mm-hmm. Um, so here, have your honorary serologist title. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I have the power to do that. I'll put it up next to my degree. <laughs> anyway, he refers to the part on the first tablet where Gilgamesh is referred to as not leaving the son to his father, not leaving the girl to her mother, mm. and generally being a pest to the citizens of Uruk. Yeah, that set off some alarm bells in my uh-huh. head. I was like, hmm, I'm getting that like Kill Bill theme playing. <laughs> <laughs> The conventional interpretation of this is that he oppresses the men by forcing them to labour building the walls of Uruk, and he oppresses the women by forcing them to be in his harem. Jacobson doesn't think that that makes any gosh darn sense. Oh, I like you, Jacobson. So Enkidu is created by the gods to be a solution to this problem, mm-hmm. right? Gilgamesh is oppressing his citizens in some way, so they make Enkidu as an equal to stop him doing this. Yep, yep, I see where this is going. Okay. I like it. 
if what's happening is that Gilgamesh is making the men build a lot of walls, that doesn't really make a lot of sense because that doesn't actually stop after Enkidu shows up. Mm-hmm. Similarly, Enkidu is established early and intensely as having quite a large sexual appetite himself, so surely him showing up doesn't actually really help the women of Uruk. It's just going to be like, now there's two of them. <laughs> um, unless. Unless Jacobson thinks that another explanation is required and here is where he points to the prophetic dreams that Gilgamesh has about stand-ins for Enkidu that herald the fact that Enkidu will still be in his life. So he has one dream about a meteor landing in the middle of Uruk and then another about a giant axe being in the middle of Uruk mm-hmm. and these are very clearly Enkidu like this isn't our interpretation that's just that is just what is happening of what is happening in the story. Yeah. I'll read to you Jacobson's translation of the second dream the one about the axe in it Gilgamesh says my mother I have seen another one I've seen puzzling things in the street of Uruk of the plazas lay an axe and they gathered around it. The axe its forms were strange. I saw it and rejoiced. I loved it and cohabited with it as if it were a woman. I took it and placed it at my side. A quick translation note. The word that cohabited is the translation for in Jacobson's version is generally elsewhere translated as caressed. Oh, okay, wow. Scholars generally take that to be a better translation of it. We will discuss this word in some more detail going forth. I mean, even cohabited is not entirely free of homoeroticism in this context. No, it surely is not. (laughs) On the basis of this, Jacobson concludes that this, quote, cannot mean anything but that homosexual intercourse is going to take place between Gilgamesh and the newcomer. So not holding back there at all. Uh, Which, again, like, the 1920s, I love this. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, he points out that Enkidu is immediately established to have great sexual vigor and Gilgamesh. Therefore, it makes sense that he's oppressing all of the people by having an insatiable sexual appetite, which Enkidu would be able to match and is coming to do that. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty sound analysis from my completely uneducated point of view. Yeah, I, it should be clear that, just in case I've led people astray by mentions that I have done ancient world studies type stuff, not this society at all. So <laughs> maybe I have like a slight step up from you, but really like not much of one at all. So from our uneducated opinion, that seems great. When I was saying before that alarm bells were going off in my head, that was very much what I was thinking, was that I was like, what? Uh, how is Gilgamesh oppressing these men? Mm. And why is the language about how he oppresses them the exact same language that is used with regards to young women. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into a little bit about like what norms are at play here in a second. Okay. Spoilers, yeah. uh, we just don't really know. Yeah. Um, but before that, I thought we'd kind of go through a few other things, you know, like language that's used in this text that is pretty homoerotic. Yeah. Um, so I've largely followed Susan Ackerman's analysis of this uh, for much of the rest of this episode. Susan Ackerman wrote a book called When Heroes Love, in which she analyzes both Gilgamesh and the story of David and Jonathan from the Bible. Mm-hmm. She has a list of 11 points of why she thinks that they were in a sexual relationship, which we don't have time for. <laughs> um, so we're going to go through just like a few of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Returning to the language that's used in the meteor and axe dreams, mm-hmm. uh, specifically the words loving and caressing, mm-hmm. these are words that are explicitly used to mean have sex with earlier in the story. So they're words that are used when Enkidu was having his week-long sex romp with Shamhat. <laughs> it uses the same words to describe what they are doing as what Gilgamesh will be doing to this axe. Yeah. Interestingly, she also 
also furthers an analysis of the line, I took it, meaning the axe, Mm -hmm. and placed it at my side, pointing out that this can just as easily be translated as, I took him and made him my brother. Oh, okay. Gilgamesh and Enki do use the term brother to refer to each other quite a bit, Mm -hmm. and I, to be honest, expected to see people use this as a reason why they were not sexually involved. But Ackerman points out that it's quite common in the ancient Near East for brother and sister to be used as euphemistic terms for a beloved or a sexual object of interest. Yeah. Um, We can see this in Canaanite literature, in Egyptian love poetry, we see it in the Torah. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't actually have an Akkadian example, so an example that is of the same civilization as the standard uh, version of this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's not watertight, but it's interesting. Yeah. Also, as you mentioned, specifically with the text saying that Gilgamesh took wives away from their husbands, um, that's referring to the fact that Gilgamesh is using the rite of the first night, um, where he gets to have sex with a bride before a husband does for the first time, which is quite awful. Yep. Um, yep. And, you know, most people's exposure to this, I guess, is probably Game of Thrones, where it comes up pretty prominently. That's interesting because, um, and I did not, like, look this up in any way for this episode, so this could be, like, blatantly incorrect, mm. that... I I believe that the understanding of that happening in like medieval Europe is generally regarded to be false. Yeah. Um, okay. But it's interesting to think what like George's exposure to that is and like his thoughts about it, mm, um, mm. which is a whole other thing that's nothing to do with Gilgamesh. <laughs> But yeah, so that is present in this text, mm-hmm. and Enkidu decides that he's going to confront Gilgamesh and prevent him from doing this. Um, so it is something that the text also treats as explicitly immoral. Yeah. So Enkidu confronts Gilgamesh while Gilgamesh is on his way to have sex with this woman. They have an extended wrestle, at the end of which they acknowledge each other as equals and embrace and become friends. <laughs> and, and kiss, I believe. And kiss, yeah, they do kiss. Gilgamesh is intent on having sex with a woman, and then Enkidu shows up, and he shifts his attention to Enkidu, shows him affection, and entirely forgets about the woman, and neither of them ever show any sexual interest in a woman again in the text. That is true. That is true. There's possibly a bit of a play on words when Enkidu enters Uruk, quote-unquote, upright, that being a word that suggests that he has an erection throughout this extended period of wrestling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ackerman specifically suggests that this mention here of Enkidu is meant to recall that very long-lasting erection that he had with Shamhat, mm-hmm. um, because I guess one of like Enkidu's key traits is just having an erection at this point in the story. Yeah. Yeah. So this is what I meant about there being explicit sexual content in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize we'd be talking about penises this whole time, but we are. Yep, yeah, we this sure is are. what the episode is. You can blame Sinleke Onini. <laughs> <laughs> I especially liked a quote that Ackerman provides from the scholar Wall, who says, Enkidu's physical lust for Shamhat's body is merely his apprenticeship to desire before accepting his true vocation in loving Gilgamesh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it did kind of come across like that. Shamhat was his path into being a civilized man, and then Gilgamesh Gilgamesh was his life partner. Yeah, the gods are like, we really need someone to have sex with Gilgamesh. Quick, go show him what sex is and get him back here. Like, it is like, quick, do like on-the-job training. All right, you're good, go. Yeah. 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 Unsurprisingly, though, there are many who disagree that the relationship is sexual. They'll generally point to the fact that although the text is not shy about depicting sex on 
screen, on page, mm-hmm. on clay tablet. Um, <laughs> nowhere is sex depicted explicitly between Enkidu and Gilgamesh. Mm-hmm. So we have these potential references to sexual desire. We have the dreams, mm. but there's no just, and then Gilgamesh and Enkidu had sex for seven days yep. after that. It is worth pointing out that many of the above references are unsure. So if we talk about, um, for example, them embracing and kissing, um, that certainly happens. But what that meant in the contemporary setting is genuinely debated. You know, not every society understands embracing and kissing the way that we do today. A criticism, not so much of the overall argument that their relationship was sexual, but of specific people arguing that it was sexual, is that they often try and map our understanding of sexuality today onto ancient Mesopotamia. Mm -hmm. So we have to have this discussion now. (laughs) And that is, I think, a fair point. Scholars who support the idea that they were having sex in the story often do kind of come to it with this mindset where, like, they're clearly understanding that like Gilgamesh is heterosexual and then he becomes homosexual in a way that is quite modern and also even in a modern context bad. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, admittedly, you did refer to before how after they meet in the story, neither of them do show desire for women from that point onwards to the point of Gilgamesh rejecting the advances of... The goddess of sex. The goddess of sex. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, maybe that's just because they're in a cute gay relationship and that doesn't mean that they're explicitly homosexual. (laughs) Mm. Um, But I do think that today, writing about those things, you need to be careful to kind of examine what exactly it is you're suggesting. It is worth taking into account, though, like, what do we know about what the societies that made this story thought about men having sex with each other? Mm -hmm. Because that obviously has a bearing on whether they're having sex in this story. Shockingly, the answer is we don't really know. The uh, evidence is quite sparse. Ackerman did point to a Middle Assyrian law from like 1225 BCE, mm-hmm. which is quite specific for something that she's put circa in front of, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> which says that a man who has intercourse with his comrades will then be punished by a man having intercourse with him and will then be castrated. Uh, so there's some stuff to unpack there. Cool. First of all, it is clear in the context of this law that the issue is not with a man having sex with a man per se. You know, only one of them is punished. Mm-hmm. So we have to sort of look at what we think that might mean. The one who is being punished is the one who penetrates the other one. Okay. So it seems to understand that a man penetrating another man is doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Ackerman flutes the idea that it could be that the sex described is meant to be understood as not consensual, or that it could be understood as wrong to penetrate your social equal, which is implied by the term comrade. Right. Or it's inappropriate for a man to penetrate another man at all because it's seen as feminizing. The way that the language of like someone having sex with someone else is does seem to sort of imply that it's something that someone does to another person. Person A does sex act to person B Mm -hmm. um, in a way that seems to, at least to some scholars, point to the idea that an active partner does the sex to a passive partner Mm -hmm. and that it cannot be something that happens between equals. Mm -hmm. All of that is like quite a small amount of evidence, Mm -hmm. but it is some evidence that we have to contend with. The relationship 
relationship between Gilgamesh and Enkidu is famously one between equals. It's like the entire point mm-hmm. of their relationship that Enkidu is Gilgamesh's like perfect match. It's yeah. very hard to say that without it sounding gay, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to say that their relationship is romantic or sexual, we have to find a way to kind of resolve the tension between other sources that exist in roughly the sort of same civilization that don't view that as being legitimate, apparently. Yeah, I mean, this is a conversation in terms of what constitutes sex and what Mm -hmm. constitutes a sexual act that, like, literally occurs in the modern day. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about ancient civilizations, and particularly when we're talking about, from what you were saying before, two different civilizations as well, that may come into play in terms of whether or not it was considered appropriate to mm-hmm. describe the two people having sex mm-hmm. or what was appropriate to describe or mm-hmm. how it was appropriate to describe it mm-hmm. in the context of that society. But yeah, I mean, as you said, we don't have a huge amount of yeah. information yeah. to go on. I think it's fair to look at something like that the same way that people who say they're not having sex look at some of the evidence where it's like, cool, maybe. Those who view them as not being sexually involved often view them instead as being homosocial is the word that they'll generally use so enjoying this kind of like very intense male friendship that is necessitated by a culture in which society is largely segregated by gender Mm -hmm. basically that in this society it's possible for a man's closest relationship to be with another man but just because we today expect a man's closest relationship to be with someone with whom he's having a romantic and sexual component to that relationship, it doesn't mean that that is the same in the ancient world. It should be noted here that describing this relationship as a friendship therefore doesn't seem quite accurate either, because obviously we have a concept of what a friendship is that is not what is described there. There's a flip side to yeah. saying, well, this doesn't necessarily constitute the same thing that we think of when we talk about a romantic or sexual relationship. The exact same argument applies to a platonic relationship mm. as we think of it now. Exactly, yeah. Scholars will sometimes try and convey this very thing by using terms like his boon companion or his comrade in arms and stuff like that. And like I admire and agree with what they're trying to do there, but it's often very clunky and weird to say. And feels very like homoerotic um, uh, historical fiction novel. Yeah, it does, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you're trying to determine the nature of this relationship, yeah, it's incredibly complicated. And I mean, you know, I found it really interesting the uh, scene where they sort of become conjoined by, I believe it's Gilgamesh mother who is a oh, goddess. yeah, wow. I uh, just, like, didn't think to even mention this. Yeah. And, and so, for those who haven't read it, uh, there's a scene whereby, um, I think it's Gilgamesh's mother. Yeah, 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 yeah. Describes that now Enkidu will be as one, and they will both be effectively, like, considered to be partners, and that he is also of her family now. Yeah, she definitely refers to Enkidu as, like, now being her son, mm. um, which which I guess is interesting to consider alongside other references of them calling each other brother. Like, mm. I suppose that that must come from the same context. Like, is is part and parcel of the same way that the author of that text considered their relationship. And whether yeah. that is, like, sexually or not. You could read that as Enkidu becoming Gilgamesh's adopted brother. Mm. And you could also read it as them becoming gay life partners. Yeah. Her being like, well, you're my son-in-law now. Yeah. 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 Even those who argue that their relationship shouldn't be understood as sexual admit the intense homoeroticism with which the text describes them. So while some things, such as them embracing, is 
ambiguous. The terms that we mentioned, such as the term caress, which always connotes sexual intercourse, Mm -hmm. is not. Mm -hmm. You know, that is a sexual word that is being used to describe their relationship. You can argue about what that means, but you can't argue that that overtone is there. So, for example, the scholar Marty Nissanen, who is one of the people who insists that the relationship is homosocial rather than homosexual, still admits that it's homoerotic. That's walking a very fine line. Yeah, which is interesting. I don't really know what scholars are suggesting this text means. What it means to suggest that something isn't homosexual but is homoerotic. Mm. And no one seems to have really furthered that argument in any kind of interesting or convincing way. Like, is the implication there that the writers were doing this in such a way that they wanted to heavily suggest sexual desire between the two of them, but did not want you to think that that was ever fulfilled? Is that the implication there? And I guess that is a genre of fiction that appears in modern fiction. Like, there are definitely novels that we would describe as homoerotic, written by, you know, your sort of great American novelists and those style of people who, by their own stated intentions, weren't aiming for homosexual Mm. implications, but we would describe those as homoerotic now. So I guess that is a style of writing that exists, Mm. but like attributing it to an ancient civilization. I don't think it's impossible to take the quite sexual language, but the fact that, for example, they never actually have sex Mm. on clay tablet. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) I definitely was like, they are having sex on top of a clay tablet Mm. as a result of that sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I I don't think that that's a ludicrous suggestion. Mm -hmm. I think that you can make that argument, but I think that you then need to say, like, why? What do you think that's doing? What does that say about the society who wrote it? What does it say about this text? And no convincing explanation for this has been furthered that I have read. The scholar David Halperin, who is quite a famous theorist in queer history, particularly in classics, contends that the intense friendship that is being portrayed is inherently anomalous even to the culture that it is in, Mm -hmm. saying that it exists, again, even in that culture outside of normative relationships and therefore that the authors had to convey its dynamic with language that belonged to sort of other intense ties of kinship, which is an interesting argument given that scholars tend to stress how much you have to understand this as a relationship in its context. Mm. And then Halperin kind of comes along and says it is not understandable within that context. I'm not saying that to say either of them are wrong. Mm. I just think that that's an interesting tension in the scholarship there, and I don't quite know what to make of it. Yeah, as you said, not necessarily to say which side is correct, but I do... I can understand that as an argument, in terms of, obviously, Gilgamesh is a semi-divine being, Mm -hmm. and so to have his partner be Enkidu, who's also a semi-divine being, but in a way that is beyond the scope of normal human relationships, Mm. Uh, and therefore not necessarily explicitly sexual or explicitly platonic Mm. does make a degree of sense. Yeah. I think it is also worth pointing out that if Halperin's right and the friendship is anomalous to its culture and therefore inherently somewhat ambiguous, wouldn't contemporary consumers of this story, whenever we want to count contemporary as a very long span of time, (laughs) have had the same experience that we're having right now Mm. where they differ in their understanding of their relationship and that there's not 
not one right answer, which some listeners or readers misunderstood, mm. but that the text is inherently ambiguous, therefore a queer reading cannot be wrong. Yeah. The last point I wanted to make was one that Susan Ackerman makes, which is that if we're trying to take this major source of homoeroticism and hold it up against contemporary male-male sexual norms, if we find that they don't make sense together, we don't need to chuck out that the first is homoerotic. We just need to adjust the fact that our understanding of homoeroticism and homosexuality in ancient Mesopotamia is not complete. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, the idea of what constitutes being in a relationship with another man and how romantic and how sexual that is and what behaviours that involves. We don't limit sexuality based on a particular behaviour in the modern day and so the idea that it should be limited in our understandings of ancient civilization seems a bit absurd. So this maybe isn't the straightforward conclusion that actually, yes, they were definitely gay that, you know, would be fun. But I think this has been a productive discussion anyway, and I think that we're at least convinced that they're not not gay, <laughs> which is sometimes all you can ask for. Yep. With that, my name is Eli. I'm Jason. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us on social media. We are on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook as Queer as Fact. You can also listen to more of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you do listen to us on iTunes, please leave us a review and a rating out of five stars. It really helps us to find a wider audience and is one of the best ways you can support us. If you would like to support us with some cold hard cash instead we have a red bubble with our logo on various items that you can put on and around your body uh, we also have a patreon where patreon supporters will get various rewards depending on what money they give us you know how it works one of those rewards is getting to vote on what the topic of upcoming episodes will be i'm not going to tell you what it is but our patrons just voted on the topic of our next queer as fiction episode which i will be hosting our next episode of queer as fact will be out on august 15th when irene will be telling us about the golden orchid society which was a community of women who rejected heterosexual marriage in 19th century china cool mm. thank you very much for listening and we'll see you then